Hello and welcome back to this shared space. My name is O, and this week I shared space with Lawpunk. We had a great conversation, and I really hope you'll enjoy it. She's a writer and a poet who's been contributing to Web3 and NFTs in many different ways. I came to know her through the Forgotten Runes Wizard Cult project, where she wrote some of the very first pieces of lore in the form of poems. I hope you'll find this conversation stimulating, and please remember that nothing in this conversation is meant as financial advice. We start the conversation by exploring how Lawpunk got into the Web3 and crypto space. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just kind of letting me in on how did you find your way to the cryptocurrency space? I've been somewhat of an adherent of the cypherpunk uh, philosophy my whole life, probably since I was 15. I'm in my 40s now. Um, and I've really always believed that information wants to be free. Um, so when Satoshi Nakamoto came out with his white paper and, and was talking about crypto and, and what it could do, you know, I was really excited about that. But I didn't actually start buying crypto until about 2012. Um, and I was interested in it then from a sort of a liberatory perspective of how can people who are excluded from the space of the mainstream economy um, and society use crypto. And so I was trying to use crypto in a way that, you know, I put in labor or goods and I, you know, extract labor or goods or services or something like that. Um, so I'm not trying to use crypto as an investment. Um, and, you know, there wasn't really much of an economy and a, and a movement around it then. So I wasn't very successful. Um, and I got back involved in crypto uh, in like the beginning of 2021, um, just because I was looking, you know, as a self-care thing, as kind of a hobby, you know, something to do that had nothing to do with my mainstream daily life and work. And so I got back involved in crypto and I got some ETH. Um, and then I was sort of reading the news and I saw Beeple's uh, amazing sale um, for the first 5,000 days. Um, and so I started looking into NFTs. Um, and at that time, there was this real kind of golden age going on on this app called Clubhouse, which is a voice app um, that was around before Spaces where people would get into rooms and, and you know, have, have discussions. And so I was meeting people who are involved in NFTs and art uh, in the clubhouse spaces. Um, and I just started talking to people and, and thinking, what kind of value can I add to, to the work of these artists? And I was thinking, you know, the way that the internet is based is on words. Um, so every artist needs a description of their piece. They need artist statements. They need texts for websites and stuff like that. And so I thought this is something that I can offer as a writer because I've got decades of experience writing. Um, and so I just started offering my work for free, you know, particularly to people who speak English as a second language and, and they just want to have really good, understandable, clear text um, that suits their intention uh, for their NFTs. Um, and people started 
you know, inviting me to do that work with them and, and then for pay as well. Um, and Dario De Siena was one of the first people um, who really gave me that opportunity. And he introduced me to lots of other folks and was a really big supporter. Um, and so I was doing that work, writing, writing for people's collections. Um, and at the same time, you know, I was getting involved with the NFT community on, on Twitter. And uh, people would have their, their collections and I would start writing poems about, about their NFTs. And people started liking that. Um, and then Digital Art Chick invited me uh, with my poems to, to be part of the Ether Poems collection. Um, and so I did that. Um, meanwhile, I'd sold a couple of, of pieces of my own work, collaborations with artists, um, including Charmaine Hussein and, and uh, other really great creators in the space. Um, and then, you know, working with Ether Poems, the first collection sold out. Um, I did work. Uh, with a wonderful pixel artist named Pixel Crow uh, for Ether Poems 1. And then we were building Ether Poems 2, which was video poems. And I was hanging out in the Discord uh, with Digital Art Chick and the rest of the Ether Poets. And her uh, one of her tweets was on the front page of, of Twitter's own Twitter account because they were giving away uh, the 140 collection, uh, which was... 140 NFTs that Twitter issued. Uh, and uh, so I wrote a poem to Twitter that day and they gifted me one of their NFTs, Reply Guy. And within about a half an hour, I sold that for 50 ETH, which was one of the most amazing things that's happened in my life. Um, and I wouldn't have had that except for the NFT community. Um, and then with those 50 ETH, you know, that really was energizing to me. And I thought, you know, I could just cash this out and put it in my bank account. But instead, what I did was I took some of that money and I bought a crypto punk. Um, and once I had that punk, I mean, that punk is magic. Basically, it's a real statement of digital identity and commitment to the space. Um, and at that point, um, really, people started opening their doors to me and inviting me to to collaborate on their projects. And so I've had just an amazing time over the past uh, nearly two years now, um, working with NFT projects, with fine artists, with apps, um, and uh, amazing collections, all kinds of people bringing the power of words and, and storytelling to, to the art. And, and that's basically what I do in the space. And that's kind of my, my core work and my vibe. Amazing. Thank you for sharing all that. There's a, there's a lot in there and I'm not sure exactly where to start, but perhaps you might elaborate on how you came to decide to buy a CryptoPunk. What was the context around that decision? Uh, so I would, I had this big pile of money, um, 50 ETH, sitting in my MetaMask. And I would check the price of ETH every day, and it was just so volatile. You know, ETH was maybe about 2200 uh, when I got it, or 2100 um, And it would just go up and down, and I'm like, this is a really volatile crypto asset. So I was thinking about what is cryptocurrency? What is blockchain? What is this technology? Why do I believe in this technology? Um, 
And I believe in it for the same reasons that I had, you know, back in 2008 and 2012, um, that the technology is there for us to be able to associate, not just economically, but as a culture, as a community in this decentralized way. Um, you know, that is a counterweight to oligarchs, to states, to big media, to big tech. And, and you know, that was just, that was just really important to me. So CryptoPunks really capture the ethos and the essence of the space. They were started as an art project. The individual punk isn't the work of art. The work of art is all 10,000 punks and the smart contract, because what goes with them, I mean, you can still buy and sell and trade punks from the contract today. Yuga Labs owns the IP of punks, but there is literally no way that they can turn off that contract, no matter what, as long as the Ethereum network exists. People are going to be able to trade punks with zero royalties, and the only fee they're paying is gas for the rest of the time. And so that is part of the project. Um, CryptoPunks are kind of the first real PFP project that really took off. Um, so everything from board apes to whatever flash in the pan, semi rug that somebody is coming up with tomorrow, all of these profile projects, all of these projects exploring digital identity are in a sense derivatives of punks. So when I was buying a punk, uh, I was making a commitment to the really fundamental values of the space. Um, and, you know, just from a financial perspective as well, um, a crypto punk, you know, they were going up in value. Um, some people think of them as what's called a Veblen good. Um, and that is like a luxury object that the more valuable it is, the more value it is perceived to have. And, you know, the value kind of spirals up and and up. And, you know, at a certain point last year, the floor price for a punk was like $400,000. And now it's something like $75,000 or $80,000. But when I bought that punk, you know, it was a commitment to these, these ethos, this cultural significance of the space. And it's also kind of, you know, a hedge on ETH that, you know, Ether may go up and down in value, but a crypto punk is really an abstraction of the technological promise of, you know, the Ethereum virtual computer and of blockchain in, in general. So when I bought the punk, my anxiety went way down um, about, you know, this store of value. And even when the value of the punk has gone up way more or, you know, it's just fluctuated much more than ETH itself, I still am super confident that in the long run, um, you know, the punks are going to be incredibly valuable. They're going to be this seminal piece of, of digital art um, that will just flourish as the technology prospers and makes a broader and broader impact on the world. Beautiful. Yeah, definitely when I first made my way into the space, punks and people who had punks as their profile pictures were some of the first people that I followed and some of the first people that I saw talking about NFTs. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing about punks. It's an access to 
one of the most powerful social networks in the space because everybody who's got a punk, you know, the people who've got punks, they're building. They're building the infrastructure of Web3. They're doing amazing fine art. Um, they're, you know, making markets. They are producing valuable projects. Um, and, and so I can just jump into the punks chat and ask, you know, who, who is an expert on this or who's an expert on that? And somebody there, if they don't have the answer, they're going to know who does. Um, and the value and the meaning that I've gotten from the punks community is immeasurable. You can't put a dollar figure on it. If we could put a dollar figure on it, though, if you don't mind me asking, when you purchased your punk, what did you purchase it for at that time? My punk was, I think, 17 and a half ETH. Um, it's punk number 6825. Um, and, you know, she's got pink eyeshadow and an orange knitted beanie. Um, you know, and so I bought that. It was like $47,000 or something. And it's like the second biggest purchase that I ever made in my life after my house was that punk. I was scared. I was so scared buying that thing because that was a huge chunk of, of the money that I had. And then like four months later, I was like, damn it, I should have bought two. But it's like sitting there back in the day, I was, when I bought that punk, I was sitting in bed. I bought it on my phone. My husband was asleep, you know, and he woke up and I was like, I bought a punk. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's just one of these things. Um, but yeah, it was a really scary purchase but one of the things that I had to support my decision making was I was a member of these amazing NFT communities I was in these discords where I knew there were a bunch of grown adults and I could ask them should I buy a punk you know is this a good buy um, is this a good idea and it's like they're all going to say do your own research and not financial advice but they're also you know going to be so generous with the context and you know, so I was able to make that decision and feel confident and supported in that decision, even though I was very nervous because I was a member of these communities and that was just really cool. Yeah, definitely. Really cool. The community by which you and I met, the Forgotten Ruins, has definitely kind of revealed that to me, the the power of community, the the things people can do and the support you can feel. Um, so definitely, definitely hear that. Absolutely. Forgotten Runes is another really good example. Um, I mean, it's pixel art as well, but it's like in all of the absolute carnage of the bear market in Forgotten Runes, you know, <clears throat> in some discords, people are tearing each other apart, but in the Forgotten Runes discord, you know, it's all about what are we creating? What are we building? You know, it's Wizard Wednesday. We're all going to get together and vibe. Let's play Dungeons and Dragons. Look at this cool spinoff project. You know, um, that's been the vibe in the Forgotten Runes Discord the whole time because they, like punks, they're an absolute original. Um, they have the most powerful, clear, and effective kind of creation norm in the space. Everybody is there. Um, you know, it's lore, not floor, as people say. People care more about building this world together, this collaborative legendarium, than they do about making a quick, 
a quick flip uh, on the floor price. Um, and it's just been such a healthy and positive and constructive space, even when so many other communities are like collapsing and, and tearing themselves apart. You know, we've never had that problem. And, you know, I've met so many cool collaborators in the space, uh, in the wizards, including yourself, uh, you know, and uh, SPZ, you know, who has made an amazing song with me and, you know, all the people that I've written poems for. Uh, I think Forgotten Runes has been so valuable to me and it's just been such a powerful support as I've kind of progressed uh, and developed in the space. Yeah, definitely love the the song you put out with SPZ and also a big fan of your poetry. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier that kind of your entry point, the way you started getting involved was through the power of words and your ENS is law punk. I was wondering if you might kind of explain for people who maybe are less engaged with the activity of writing what you feel the power of words is and how you relate to that i mean i'm tooting the horn of my industry probably over much here but i think that storytelling is the most important thing you can look at something like a diamond a diamond is a really cool rock it's pretty rare it's got a lot of useful industrial applications it's kind of pretty but the reason that it's so valuable you know to the point where the value of diamonds has caused you know horrible suffering with blood diamonds and everything else but you know because people want it so much but the reason it's so powerful is because of a collective story that humanity is telling each other that this is a valuable object you know this is something that i want to put in a tiara and like you know a queen is wearing that at a state dinner or something like that um we attach significance to every object every relationship every individual every idea in our lives through the power of words through the power of story um and so when you're talking about the nft space the projects that really succeed are the ones that are telling a good story. And, you know, that could be a narrative that's been, you know, designed a fiction by a storyteller, or it could just be the stories that they're telling about themselves, about the community, about the people backing the project, um, you know, about how valuable the project's going to be. Any kind of communication for any NFT project or really anything in society is based on words and so you have to be conscious of them and you have to approach them with purpose and intention and you have to be able to take your learnings positive and negative and and to iterate from there just like with the art um, a lot of times story or words becomes very secondary it's something that's relegated you know to community managers um, or, or just to, to people who are volunteers but the projects that take story seriously and that develop a consistent voice succeed better. Yeah, I definitely recognize that in a, quite a few different projects. And at the same time, I kind of really love art for the, for the international 
ability to reach many different kind of eyes at the same time. So when I look across the space, I see some of the most successful projects, should say, in terms of floor price, at least being some of the generative art projects. Some of the generative art projects have had some of the, the highest sales. And these are kind of projects that don't always have a story attached to them. But maybe they do. How do you see generative art and how that fits into this? I absolutely love generative art. Um, and uh, I think it definitely has a story attached. Um, it might not necessarily be explicit to the project. I think part of it is the seductive lure of the ghost and the machine. Um, so if you're looking at something like QQL or Fidenza, um, I've written a lot of poems about various Fidenzas and, and a few QQLs, and I've done some QQL polls. But it's not about the awesomeness of the technology, which is really awesome. It's about the fact that you can set parameters and then get an image that evokes human meaning because of our gaze and what inheres within it, you know? Um, you can totally make an emotion from a, a collection of rhomboids or a bunch of circles of different sizes and shades, um, whether it's a landscape, whether it's an expression of an emotion um, or an aesthetic sublimeness, uh, anything like that. So, so they're definitely telling a story, but I think the way it works is it kind of turns it on its head and it gives us the opportunity to attach story to it. Um, so, so I think the really best, uh, generative art looks like something, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to represent real life objects, but it, it conveys emotion, it conveys meaning. And, you know, some projects who are generative, maybe not handle that particularly skillfully, but I think, you know, uh, Tyler Hobbs with Fidenza and QQL have uh, handled it in an incredibly professional and skillful way, and they've really leveraged that community engagement. Um, like with the generative contest for QQL, um, I think that was an absolute success. And then you have collections like Autoglyphs. Like they might not be as instantly pretty as a Fidenza or a QQL, but they have that originality, that earliness, um, and that kind of very basic, almost like ASCII art, that kind of very basic aesthetic. So you're kind of peering into a sea of chaos and seeing what figures come out, kind of like an ancestor of things like Fidenza and QQL. I love that, yeah. Autoglyphs definitely have that kind of feeling of the early paintings in caves kind of vibe yeah a hundred percent i have loved reading your poems on twitter over the course of the past year and a half two years about a whole range of different projects the ones that stand out to me are forgotten runes where your poems were one of the first forms of law and also i remember whilst Goblin Town was blowing up, you were also doing some amazing poems. Thank you. What, what draws you to 
write poems about different projects and what is the process of poem writing like for you? Well, I mean, I've had a very interesting couple of years myself. So I get bored about drawing from my own life for poems sometimes. So it's a really good thing when there's another universe that I can explore and write poems about. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm drawn to collections that are interested in lore, that have a vibrant community, um, that have engagement, because, you know, I'm out here trying to make a living. My poems are a massive engagement tool. Um, they're how I get followed. They're how I get shared. They're how I connect with fellow creators. They're how I get work. Um, so, you know, with Forgotten Runes, um, Claire Silver uh, posted this really cool picture of a crow, um, and, uh, a wizard, uh, and wrote a line, the crow commands, the captive must obey. And, you know, I write a lot of sonnets, which are really structured metered poems. And so that is a line in a sonnet. That is the same structure as a line in a sonnet. So I wrote a sonnet around that. And then, uh, the founders, Dada and Elf approached me to make poems, for prize winners before the mint. Um, and there was really positive response to that. So then afterwards they set me up with this poetry of the forgotten runes collection. And then anybody who wants a poem, I can mint it and send it to them on official forgotten runes, uh, parchment from a forgotten runes, uh, deployer account, which is really cool. Um, that's sharing as a collaborator with me on, uh, on the open sea store. Um, and so that's just one example. Um, nouns is another one. Um, I was writing a lot of poems about nouns, um, another sort of very strict structured kind of poem. Um, and I was really stretching with that. And then I approached, uh, their Tao and I got a grant to write a poem about every noun, uh, for a month. Um, and that was an amazing challenge. Um, and I published a book with them about that, which was really cool. Um, Goblin Town, I just loved the goblins. <clears throat> and this is actually really funny. There's kind of a meme poem structure that I think came from Reddit uh, called I Lick the Bread, which is basically a poem that you write from the perspective of an animal, like, you know, eating something it shouldn't or getting into trouble. Um, and from their kind of mischievous point of view. Um, and it's only four syllables long for each line. And I thought, can I use this structure with goblins? So with goblins, um, instead of four syllables a line, it was only two syllables a line. So every word in the Goblin Town poems was one syllable long, or maybe, you know, occasionally a two syllable word would be in there. And, you know, I liked that because it sort of was conveying the elemental kind of nature of the goblins like you know in a group they're very powerful but their thinking is very primal very much at a base level very similar to an animal um, and you know the great thing about that was it was just a joyful moment in the space you know that the goblins were so successful and you know so many people got mad and said that they were ugly and and just there were all these fights uh, about the goblins and people didn't like the goblins and uh, the goblin town team just did such a good job engaging with that tension and just growing and growing their their kind of 
share of the stage um, every time that happened. And, and so, you know, I really enjoyed doing the poems because there was like this instant connection with thousands of other people who are just really into the goblins. Um, and, and, and so I think that, you know, the common thread between all of these things is, is just that, that, uh, that community, like these are all very different projects from each other, but what they have in common is, is that they're all members of really tight communities who are really focused and, and determined on, on getting that project out there. Um, and I feed off that energy. I feed off of it artistically and, and I give it back. Um, you know, I, I so much get joy from writing these things, um, because they're just this instant form of connection. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just really great and really fun. Sorry for the long rant. <laughs> no worries. Um, I love to hear you speak. Yeah, I actually, um, I spoke to a collaborator over at Nouns last week and learned a lot about the Nouns project and found it to be fascinating the way that they've got their structure going there. And yeah, I definitely agree with you about Goblin Town. It was divisive in some ways, but it was also awesome to see a project like that do well. And you definitely added to the to the joy around that particular project, even though I wasn't actually part of the, the ownership of it. Yeah, I sold my goblin and my burger, um, but I still have my Illuminati pyramid because, you know, I'm pretty sure that that team is going to continue to bring the awesomeness. And, you know, a lot of the grumbles uh, that have been minted are just so, so joyful and, and so wonderful. Um, and I'm totally cheering them on. Amazing. I wonder when you first got into crypto at the very beginning and then all the way up until kind of now, I sometimes see crypto as a kind of neutral technology that then these communities kind of place their moral judgments onto. And you do have all the things that people say are bad about crypto, like scams and, uh, well, mostly scams. I wonder, what do you see or what have you experienced as challenges within crypto and how do you have any advice for people who are approaching crypto for the first time? What would you tell them? I mean, this, this is a emotionally laden question for me um, because in crypto, I think there are too many people that treat it like a casino um, or a quick get rich quick investment. Um, and I'm, I've started doing some opinion writing for uh, venture punk and I wrote my first piece that was published uh, yesterday. I think it was the day before, um, basically about what is to be done in crypto after, um, the horrible betrayal and trauma of, of SBF. Um, and, you know, what I was really advocating in there is, is going back to the basic intentions of crypto. Um, and I, I had a line in there that, you know, crypto is not here for some people to get rich. Crypto is here for all of us to be free. And that is what crypto is designed for. Um, and you see a lot in the space 
a kind of ethos of very dangerous views, um, you know, that are quite sexist, that are quite racist, you know, not from everybody, but from some very loud, very vocal people. Um, and that's a real shame because the promise of crypto is that it gives access to people on the margins, um, uh, like women, people, you know, LGBT people, people from the global South, uh, people of color, disabled people, um, neurodivergent people. Um, and there's still a lot of barriers in the space around that. Um, and that's a real shame because the promise of Web3, of, of decentralization and the radical democracy um, that is available in Web3, you know, that, that should be that should be something that everybody has access to. It's not just for crypto bros. Um, you know, so, so we need to get to a point where it's not just diversity and inclusion in the space, but real structural consciousness that people on the margins should be brought into the center. That just because somebody, you know, has had some challenges in their life, you know, Web3 should offer an opportunity and a chance to to everyone. Um, and, you know, what I would say to people who are just starting out in the space is to be really careful um, and to be conscious of how they're positioning themselves when they come in. Um, you know, to be careful of, uh, of your safety, of disclosing your identity, um, and to be conscious who you are in the community and, and to reach out and build community with good people, with ethical people. Um, you know, uh, I really, really support uh, you know, opportunities for, you know, socialist um, organizing, using blockchain, anti-fascist organizing, using blockchain, um, and, you know, supporting the rights of all marginalized people. Uh, blockchain is too important to be used as a casino. Um, and, and I really advise people coming in to be conscious and to be careful you know, who they trust. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think that is often said, um, something that's maybe a cliche in crypto now is don't trust verify. And I think there's, there's, uh, there's wisdom in that for sure. And trust is an ongoing process. Um, you know, I could be working with somebody who has got amazing work who's building some amazing technology but if like you know they're calling people you know lgbt people groomers or if they're racist or you know if they support alt-right views or whatever i don't care what they're building i don't want to work with them so it's like you have to be conscious who you're working with because there's sort of a basic level of of just dangerousness kind of bouncing around. Um, and, you know, a lot of people just write off crypto because they don't feel it's safe for them. And so what we need to do as a, as a crypto wide community is make sure that everybody feels safe here. You know, I agree. I think one of the kind of major draws to crypto and the technology itself is that it's permissionless. So anybody can come build anybody can come and 
take part and that kind of opens doors to all kinds of people being involved. So you kind of are always going to have fringes and you're always going to have places where maybe less people hang out. And I think probably crypto came out of that kind of environment itself. And I definitely agree with you that we should try and make it a place that welcomes all people. Yeah, I mean, code is law. Code is law, but code is not the only law. We can have a permissionless, trustless, immutable blockchain, and we can still build consensual, open, inclusive community norms that make everybody safe. I think one of the great things is that you can choose where to place your value. You've got more choice in terms of where you put your money, what networks you decide to be part of, what you decide to contribute towards and build up. And in that sense, definitely the types of communities that I see you building with your words and the types of communities that I try to be involved in are the ones where people feel welcome, people feel able to be themselves. And yeah, thank you for for sharing that perspective also. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking. I mean, it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately. And and yeah, little enclaves are great and everyone should have the right to build one. But I also think that the most fundamental infrastructure of our space should be open and accessible and safe for everyone. Um, and that's not just the technical infrastructure of the Ethereum virtual machine and the other blockchains that we use. It's also spaces like Discord, spaces like Twitter, we need to have community norms, you know, not where anybody feels silenced, but where everybody feels safe. And, you know, do I know the answer to that? I sure don't. But hell yeah, am I going to ask the question? How do you relate to the technologies in terms of the platforms for social interaction? So Discord and Twitter. What's your relationship to these platforms and how people use them? I mean, those are two questions, my relation and how do people use them. Um, I get a lot of work done on Discord. I build community a lot on Discord. Um, just hang out with my friends and vibe and you know check how we're all doing. Twitter is, is a stage, is a marketplace, is, is lots of other things. Um, uh, I think it's important for anybody in the space to be active there. I mean, myself, I'm a little bit nervous. I mean, that's understating it about Elon Musk having control over it, not because I want to silence people's speech. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, Drinking sparkling water. Uh, No worries. Yeah. Um, But it's not just about, with Twitter, I don't want to silence anybody's speech, but I want to make sure everyone feels safe. You know, I want to make sure in Web3, we can all build and organize together without people feeling unsafe. And, you know, there's a lot of lack of safety there, but I think there's also a lot of really positive stuff that's going on on Twitter from the NFT community, even if it's just a shilling thread. Like, do people buy art in a shilling thread? Maybe not. Maybe not so much, but what happens in that shilling thread is a bunch of artists start following each other and start talking together and forming group chats. You know, 
uh, traders, DGENs, investors start their alpha chats and, and people start sharing knowledge as a community. The whole ethos of crypto, you know, comes from, you know, cypherpunks and hacking, which is just like, you know, information is to be shared. Um, if people want to learn how to do something, you know, let's learn that together. Let's help them do that as a community. Um, and that has come to crypto as well. You know, I can just post a question on, on, on some technical topic on, on crypto on Twitter and get some pretty good responses. Um, so, so that's really cool. People are connecting there a lot. People are building in public there a lot and people are also flinging turds. Um, so, you know, there's also other sites. Uh, there's Mastodon, which is a federated social network. Um, there's not a lot of support for crypto there. Uh, there's a new app called Farcaster, which I've joined, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and, and that's kind of like a, a crypto-fueled, polygon-fueled uh, Twitter clone. Um, and, and so, you know, I've joined there. Uh, you know, there's lots of places people are building and organizing. Telegram is another one. Um, but it's really hard to kind of say what is to be done with crypto Twitter um, because the nature of the algorithms shapes who we get to connect with, whose posts we see, who we get to talk to. Um, and, you know, I'd really like those algorithms to be fully public. And I'd really like it if people could look for bias in those algorithms and that the individual user could kind of choose what kind of algorithms they want to use to, to filter their feed. You know, some people might want to see a lot of interesting new divergent stuff some people might want to really focus in on their community um and and right now we're kind of subjects in this process uh rather than agents uh, so you know there's a, there's a lot of opportunities for for change there um whether elon musk is going to listen i don't know <laughs> yeah definitely with these platforms i often have the feeling that they're trying to hold my attention and invoke emotional reactions and absolutely so yeah and people don't get taught mindfulness and people don't get taught critical thinking so the power and influence that this manipulation can have is absolutely staggering particularly when it's amplified as much as it is i want to return for a second to something you said about crypto being about information sharing which i think is is true on uh, on some level and kind of presents you this idea that cryptography itself is kind of about also safeguarding or hiding some information and kind of just hit the ball back over the fence or over the net and say how does lawpunk relate to that privacy aspect of crypto um, so there's an author I really like who doesn't share my politics at all. His name is Neil Stevenson, and he is a real kind of fictional kind of grandfather of this space. And he wrote a book called The Cryptonomicon. Um, and there's a, there's a guy in jail and he's communicating with this other guy who's kind of special. Uh, and they're playing a game called Pontifex, um, which is something that they're using to encode, you know, a key stream and communicate with each other without being heard by surveillance. Um, 
and Pontifex is a bridge. So, um, and they have a sort of a dialogue where most people think of cryptography as a wall, but it's actually a bridge. Um, you know, it's, it's a bridge. It's me communicating with somebody without a bunch of other people perceiving what I communicate and with the other person who I'm talking to being able to trust what I'm saying is, is from me and is the right, the right thing, the real deal, uh, because of the math. Um, and I think privacy is a key part of any kind of human organization. It's incredibly important. It is the necessary condition for any kind of autonomy and agency. Um, and so when the right wing starts talking about socialism, they have this kind of bugbear about it where it's like this full state surveillance of everybody and you don't even own your own goddamn toothbrush. But for me, you know, I'm, you know, a libertarian socialist, which is not a contradiction in terms. Um, you know, people, people like Noam Chomsky have used the same kind of formulation to describe his own politics. Um, you know, I want a society where everybody has what they need and everybody has immense freedom as well. And, you know, I think cryptography and its protection of privacy is really important. You know, if you just have people associating in their like little medieval village with only 150 other people, there's plenty of ways to have privacy. But if a social movement wants to organize globally, then they need to be able to communicate in their virtual agora or town square with the same amount of privacy that two people whispering in a corner would have. And, and for that, you need cryptography. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of it. Uh, you know, it used to be illegal in the United States to export uh, strong crypto, you know, just, you know, uh, PGP and whatever to sign your messages. You needed like a license from the State Department. And eventually they decided, no, you know, we can we can export this technology. Um, it's not like a military weapon that needs all of these forms from the State Department because privacy is a human right. Um and, you know, I don't like it very much at all when the right wing co-opts privacy and comes up with this falseness that the left doesn't give a shit about privacy. You know, 100 percent, the left gives a shit about privacy. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm going to be here for it every time. Cool. Thank you for sharing all that. How does now art and culture relate to social movements do you think for me art and culture are about the way that they make you feel they kind of present some kind of imagery or some words and then they kind of invoke emotions that lead you to feel either disconnected or connected to others i think if I was to make it binary. And my favorite kind of art is the art that connects and unites people. So generative art is kind of wordless and two people from across the world with maybe different politics can both look at the same piece of art and say, actually, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. We would both like to have this in our home. I think I love the, the unifying nature 
of great pieces of art. I also love art for the questions that it asks sometimes. So perhaps there's an art that depicts a particular scene or nowadays in the digital spaces, we have art that is going to self-destruct and that asks questions about what should be able to change and fall away and what perhaps should be permanent. And so for me, I think to kind of put it all together, I love that art can bring people together to ask new questions. So that's how it feels for me. I wonder how it feels for you as a writer and someone who puts poems out there, if you have any thoughts. It's my understanding that the very brave people um, who are rising up for women's rights in Iran were galvanized by a song. I should have done it. Well, I didn't know you were going to ask this question. If I did, I would have done the research and got the name of this for you. But um, this, it's my understanding there's this song and that this song has been banned from the radio, but everyone's got technology and they're all using mesh networks and Tor and they're sharing it with each other um, in Iran. Um, uh, revolutions have been started with a song, with a poem, with a piece of art, you know, you can look at Picasso's Guernica, you know, uh, you can look at, you know, Mask of Anarchy by Yeats. Um, you can spend as much money as you want on like puff pieces in the New York Times, like SBF has done or whatever. You can get your smarmy BS out there with mainstream public relations industry as much as you want. But even now, even in 2022, sometimes there is, you know, a piece of art, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember, you know, just, just the music of the Vietnam war, the resistance music of that era, um, and the impact that that has sort of tells you the answer to your question. Um, so I think, you know, I, I was on the Plymouth city council for four years because a really amazing, uh, leader of the labor party named Jeremy Corbyn, um, became our leader and he's been a lifelong socialist. Um, I think very much influenced by Buddhist ideas, a committed defender of peace, a vegetarian, you know, a, a humane man became our leader. Um, and so I, you know, joined the Labor Party. I stood for Plymouth City Council. I won. I worked very hard for four years um, and I did good work. But in terms of social change, one song, one poem, one piece of graffiti, one slogan, one movie can do more than a Congress can do, you know, because they galvanize individual people to connect over that piece of art and then over other things. You know, there's so much hope in it and that's just why art is, is so important. Great, yeah, definitely agree. Is there anything happening now in the crypto space in the the art world that you're looking at that excites you, that gets your imagination going, that you're 
looking forward to seeing how it develops. Two things. There's, you know, just generally how the technology of NFTs liberates artists of every type um, from all over the world, you know, people doing all different kinds of art. If we can develop a social norm where people can respect royalties, people can creating art anywhere where there is, you know, an internet connection and reasonable laws can earn a living from it, hopefully. Um, so that's really amazing. And I'm just sort of looking at that whole you know, from a high level industrial or cultural perspective. Um, in terms of specific artistic movements, I'm both interested and also careful of AI art. Um, obviously, it takes an incredible amount of skill to engineer the prompts and learn how to use these tools. It's no different than a, than a paintbrush. AI art is definitely art. It's art. Uh, there were amazing people like Claire Silver who are both creating holy shitballs, amazing stuff, and just sort of supporting the industry in a really inclusive and, uh, and justice-orientated way. So, you know, mad props to Claire Silver just, just for being herself. Um, the other issue, of course, is that capitalism is going to want to use AI art to put a whole lot of jobbing artists out of work. Um, but that's not the fault of the tools, is it? You know, so that is something that we need to organize and fight against. Um, you know, the Luddites put their shoes into machines and broke them, uh, and they made an important point. But, you know, the point isn't to not use technology. The point is how can we, as a society, use this technology in a just and, and progressive way? So... You know, I, I look at wonder, you know, I look with wonder at all the AI art that I'm seeing out there that is super awesome. You know, I use it to prototype stuff. I've got Mid Journey and Dolly and, you know, I use it, you know, for poem prompts and all kinds of stuff. I put poems in there and gotten really cool stuff. I'm not at the point where I'm ready to share it, but I will. And I'm doing that and I'm engaging and supporting that part of it. But I also want to make sure that all of the amazing non-AI artists that we've got out there are not decimated by this technology. And that is a social problem. That is a political problem. That is not a problem with the technology. However, we also need to make sure the technology doesn't have like inbuilt bias because a lot of the corpora of data that we use to train AI models have several problems, you know, that they've got the bias around race and gender that are inherent in our society. And they're also using people's work um, and kind of innovations without crediting them. So I think those are two areas where we really need to work uh, when we're working with AIs, either visual or textual. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And just want to put this in there before I ask my next question that super excited to see what those technologies are creating based on your poems that's that'll be exciting to see whenever you're ready to share I'll let you know cool um a question I ask basically everybody is with this space being 24 7 with the social technologies we're using kind of designed to keep people's time and attention how do you look after your own attention a lot of prayer 
Um, you know, I don't tend to do stuff in the morning that's on the internet. I go for walks, hang out with my friends, prayer, um, and just kind of a, a conscious focus on who I am and what my intention is. I mean, I will jump into a doom scrolling hole as much as anybody else, but this is what I'm trying to do, trying to get a bit of space. Um, because particularly when there's a lot of trauma going on in the space, it can be really hard to deal with. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a phrase in the Jewish tradition, which I come from, um, that I am not obligated to complete the work, but neither am I free to desist from it, you know? And so I can take a break and then pick up and continue what I'm doing, but that break is also important, you know? It is important to carve a space for the good things that, that are in your life because even if it's like just this cat, like the neighbor cat will come over and start yelling at me, or her name is Dexter, um, and just start yelling and demanding pets um, and like brushing against me, you know, it's like, I got to have space for that. If it's sunny out, I might go sit outside and work because the cat might come over and I want to pet that cat. And, and that's equally important. We all have to find these spaces you know, for our lives, for our families, you know, you know, for ourselves, um, we are much more valuable than, than what we produce. And, and so is our attention. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing everything you have. And thank you for your time. I, I'm so glad that you have shared everything you have today. And I'm really looking forward to all the amazing things I'm sure you're going to produce in the future. This is the time in the conversation where I give you free space to say whatever you want to say. The space is entirely yours. Um, and you can basically use it however you want and say whatever you want to say to whoever might be listening. I mean... If I had known about that, I might have thought of something. So now I'm going to have to pull something out of my posterior. But, you know, uh, I, I mean, it's basically just to say that if you're like starting out in the space, um, and particularly if you're from a marginalized group, um, you know, I really want to help you. Like, I'm totally happy to book in like a half an hour call with you. I'm totally happy to, to give you some advice, look at your stuff, connect you with people who might vibe with your stuff, um, you know, help you help you set up your your security, whatever kind of stuff that I can do. Um, you know, I'm really, really happy to schedule things like that. Um, it might be a few weeks in advance, uh, but, you know, I will get to you and I will do it. We can we can book that in and, and I'm honored to do so. And And the other thing is, you know, with myself, I'm always looking for cool work. I'm always looking for interesting work. Um, you know, if you go to my Twitter, lorepunk.eth, um, and just sort of scroll through my tweets, you can get a sense of what I do. Um, and, you know, I love to work with brands. An interesting branding problem will engage me uh, without cease until I solve it. Uh, 
you know, I love to write advertising copy, social media copy, um, fiction, narrative design, you know, creating the whole lore for a project, poems, discord announcements, strategy advice, connecting you with people. Um, I just love running into random cool stuff and people building cool shit in, in Web3. And if I can help, I 100% will. So look me up.